Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 is what we'll read today. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your goodness, your graciousness to us, your continued kindness, your mercy that you pour out. We thank you that you are faithful and merciful, high priest. We thank you that you teach us from your words the things that we should know of your son, Respond accordingly, continue to share in that joy and fellowship with one another. I pray, Lord, that you again open our eyes, illuminate our eyes to the wisdom from the scriptures. That you'd help me and assist me by the Holy Spirit to, to convey truth boldly, to proclaim that which brings glory to Jesus. Hide me behind the cross that we all may once again see our need for Jesus and continue to worship, respond in worship, in spirit and in truth. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. One of the most powerful indicators of authentic gospel transformation, I believe, is the deconstruction of a person's previous worldview. The deconstruction of a previous worldview, a belief system, maybe an ideology. The way you see the world completely changes when you come to Christ. It was very interesting to to hear this testimony of the missionary work being done in Slovenia and to hear someone actually come to the conclusion that they make a statement that I have completed Christianity. Something that, you know, will probably stick with me for a while and cause me to tremble a bit. But this, this worldview, this ideology, maybe this a way you, you see God and maybe the way you see the world or, or, or run away from the notion that there is a God exists in those who are not redeemed. But once you come to Christ and you have been changed, you've been transformed, there's a deconstruction of that worldview. There's something different about the way that you look at life around you. It's in the text here and in other places in Scripture, writers are they're putting forth efforts to explore the authenticity of a transformed believer, the authenticity of the profession of faith, and testing the evidences by what we are exploring here, what Scripture is telling us. We've taken a lot of time to unpack the reality of the nature of Christ his godhood, his humanity up to this point. And the responses to that 
are often evidences as to the work that God has done in your heart and mind to whether you receive those or whether you reject those are often proof of what God has actually done in your life. What we'll see here this morning is that this writer building up to this text is approaching what could be considered hallowed ground for his audience. For the people who are listening to him, this Jewish convert community, they come from Judaism and they've taken on the name of Christ. And what is to be explored here is the person that primarily defined their identity before coming to Christ. This may be considered hallowed ground in the patriarch Moses. Now, the tradition of Jews, those who would esteem highly who Moses is and who Moses was, gave him a place of significance more than any other person in human history. And there's, there's good reason for the way that Moses was honored and esteemed for this people group. He has this prestige for for very specific reasons that this people had heard from stories of their childhood all the way to the adulthood application of their religious expression. Now, who is Moses? Moses is someone we've probably heard a lot about if you've been in church for any amount of time, but it's worth recapping why people may have looked at Moses with such high regard. Moses was chosen as a deliverer via miraculous circumstances. If you remember, Moses was to be killed. There was an order that went out amongst the people that these Hebrew people had, their population had to be controlled. So Moses was to be exterminated as were all other male children at that time. But through miraculous circumstances, by a basket floating in water, he ended up in the royal court of the Pharaoh's house. He then raised, he's grown, and he's raised by these, these royal parishioners and essentially becomes to identify with the royal family. Comes back to his people after witnessing a, a, a very, very difficult circumstance, a very murderous this murderous outcome where a people was being oppressed and he sees this and he responds inwardly to this and comes to be identified with these people, leaving the prestige and the honor and the glory of being in the royal court with Pharaoh to identify with these people. On the backside of a mountain, he then feels he is called, he is, he's compelled to go and liberate this people. And the way that he does this is not just by making a statement and rallying and, and protesting and, and just doing things that may seem irritating to the, the governing body, but he advocates for the people by way of miraculous actions. There are plagues sent to this oppressive group that ultimately caused such distress that the people had to be set free. So look at Moses in this 
this light as the deliverer, the, the person who stood before Pharaoh, not only saying, let my people go, let my people go, or else God will force you to let them go. One avenue of the legend of Moses is, is also that he proclaims God's truth to Israel via direct revelation from God. So we're not just talking about somebody who's saying that they're speaking for God because privately God spoke to them and no one else was witnesses to the circumstance. No, Moses literally entered into a cloud and had conversations with God, emerged from the cloud and talked to the people and said, God told me to tell you this. He spoke with God via the burning bush where there was actual interaction there. There was something audible and something that sent him in a direction to to relay a message that God directly told him. He spoke to God at Sinai where where there was was a trembling at the notion that this, this cloud of thunder and lightning sits at the top of this mountain. And then Moses is the one who interacts with this terrifying God and shares exactly what he is supposed to to, to say to these people. And then there was this concept of the tent of meeting, where there's a, there's a tent outside of this camp of the Israelites, where Moses would walk in, everyone would see, they'd walk up to the tent, but they'd stop short of where Moses would go. And Moses would enter into this tent, a cloud would surround this tent, and the people would sit back and watch Moses have a conversation with God, walk out and say, okay, guys, this is what God wants us to do. Exodus 33, 11 says that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And Deuteronomy 34, 10 says that the Lord knew Moses face to face. This is not common. This is not normative for those who would speak for the Lord. And lastly, Moses gave Israel the law of God. He walked down a mountain with tablets of God's handwriting. Imagine just that. You walk down from this interaction with God and you're literally holding documents that have been inscribed from the holy God from heaven. And these are the things that you're to relay to this people this is the, these are the commands that God gives, and he relays this, and, and, and there's, there's an essence of that which is the law of God, but in the formal sense, the law of God represents the Pentateuch, which essentially are the first five books of the Bible. So Moses not only gives the law, this is what God says you must do, but Moses also records the historical record of God's people, of the actual people of earth. Genesis, all the way to Deuteronomy, these are, these are books that Moses writes. So the law of God is with Moses. Now, if your ancestry, if your personal ancestry carried record of such a person, then you, you'd probably revere this person as well. Thing is, is a lot of us are, are not necessarily connected to our ancestry. We don't, we don't necessarily know exactly this person in history from which we were spawned or we are descendants of. But this, this people group knew this. 
This was tied to their identity. They were told from children that this is where you came from. And most of us don't have that luxury. In some traditions, Moses was revered with higher esteem than angels. So you could see why this was almost sacred subject matter for these folks. It's also why they needed to hear these words from this writer. Now, if we begin at verse 1 of chapter 3, therefore is the right entry point into these verses because the writer wants them to attach what they will hear to what they've just heard. We've just gotten the introduction of Jesus as the high priest. Therefore, listen to this. Even though they emerge from this heavy-handed tradition of Judaism, the writer still addresses these readers as holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, giving us the indication that this text is for believers. We know the tradition you come from. I know what you've been raised to believe, but let me help further establish our connection, our familiar relation to one another. We are those who trust in Christ. This is not some all-inclusive text where anyone could read and, and hear with the same ears and gather the same value from these words. This is for the community of faith. This is for those who'd had their worldview deconstructed to place Jesus as king. And these words will prove to themselves and to the rest of the world whether or not this is authentic faith and authentic transformation. The first thing he tells this audience is to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus is something that could be acknowledged and moved on from, but what's being said here is to attentively consider Jesus, to observe Jesus in full, to fix your eyes, fix your mind upon Jesus. Obviously, we've explored all of what that could have meant up to this point, so what does it mean in light of what's being communicated here? Consider Jesus. The word consider here is the same word for, for consider that Jesus used when he says to consider the lilies. In Luke chapter 12, to consider the lilies and the fowl of the air, how they're taken care of. How much more will I take care of you? Consider this closely. In this text, in light of everything that we've already covered being asked to consider Jesus, who is the apostle. First, the apostle. The word apostle just simply means sent one. Consider Jesus the high priest, the intercessor, the advocate. We just came from the exploration of that at the end of chapter 2. Jesus being sent from God and Jesus as our high priest, our ultimate intercessor. And there's a reason that he's using these words. Verse 2 continues that, and that says he was faithful 
to the one who appointed him, the father who appointed him. He was obedient to him. Last week we talked about what that meant. What does it mean for Jesus to be faithful to God? He was obedient. He was the only one who could be considered fully faithful. And this is the entry point to this consideration of Moses and Jesus. Moses was also faithful. Moses was also an apostle in the defined sense. He was sent by God. Moses also operated in the office of a, an intercessor. Aaron's his brother, and he carries the lineage of the priesthood itself. But Moses was the living intercessor for the people, sent directly by God. If you've done any kind of study on the Old Testament in their time in the wilderness, you'll remember that Moses was the one standing before God saying, have patience with these people. God at certain times saying, I want to destroy this people. They have been ravenously rebellious against me. And Moses is saying, please, Lord, honor your promise. Preserve these people. Now, Moses is a type of Christ. And we're seeing some, some level of comparison being drawn right here in this text. So he's essentially, effectively, effectively, he's saying to this people, in the same way that you formally placed your trust in Moses, consider Jesus. There's three comparisons I'd like to give between Moses and Christ. Moses is the intercessor that they are familiar with according to tradition. Christ is the perfect intercessor in that he becomes human, in that he propitiates for us this appeasing sacrifice for God. Moses gives the law. He shares the commands of God directly from heaven. Christ fulfills the law. He obeys God perfectly. He becomes the fitting founder of our salvation. Moses leads the people out of bondage. Christ releases us from sin's bondage, which enslaved the entire world. We are liberated in totality in Christ, which is why we land on verse 3, and we acknowledge that Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. He earns more glory. He actually earns more glory. This is, not some, this is not some reference to just godhood of Jesus in the sense that he has always been eternally, eternally God. He has never changed. He has always been the supreme ruler over the universe. But we're seeing this expression of his humanity in that he obeys perfectly. He is faithful to God in ways no other human being is. He literally earns the glory that is assigned to him. Then we get into this illustration of the building and the builder. Essentially what you're seeing in these verses is that Moses is the building to observe. Christ is the designer of the building. 
Now, a beautiful house is the builder's glory. The way that the things that we like about the house and its design points back to the builder's plan. God gets glory for all buildings. He is always the builder. He either builds the house himself or he is the maker of man who builds the house. Always getting the glory. Now, when you see this, and I'll admit sometimes when, when you're reading through Scripture and you're interacting with those in the Christian faith who love the grace of God, and, and, and rightfully so, we celebrate the grace of God, it's often contrasted with the law of God, which is often associated with Moses. So we're, we're so happy that we're free from the law that maybe we don't appreciate what the law tells us about God. And that we, we delight, delighting in the law is the same thing as delighting in God in the way that we were intended to. So the law is not something that should, should be done away with and never considered again. But it never deserves more glory than the one who instituted the law, the one who fulfilled the law, the one who showed us the true glory in the instructions and the commands from heaven. Homage to the building and homage to the builder are two different things. One doesn't minimize the other, but one deserves more glory than the other. You can look at something, you can look at a work of Michelangelo and say, this is amazing. But you know that Michelangelo is the one who created this work. This is something marvelous to behold. But the author is always the one who should be ascribed the glory. The basic concept being here, creation is not to be ascribed more glory than the creator. Moses was a faithful servant. He took care of the house. He was a steward of everything that he was entrusted with. He was a witness for God. Moses was a prophet. He was given future insight into the fulfillment of the law, what was to come. But this is very different than being a son, being the actual son of God who, who operates in a rights type of interaction with the building of itself. He has rights. He has rulership. He has reign. He claims authorship and ownership. The son and the servant are two different things in that Jesus has the rights, has the ownership, and he's also the faithful servant that continues with the upkeep. So to recap these verses, what we're, we're seeing is a command to consider closely that Jesus was sent to advocate for his people faithful like Moses. Moses makes the house look beautiful, the law and testimony of God. But Jesus is the architect. He's the owner of the house, making him worth much, much more, making him worthy of more glory than Moses. We continue in Verse 6, and we see this very uncomfortable word here. Very small, two-letter word that's very uncomfortable for many of us. It's the word if. 
word if, the if clause. Now, again, if we're testing the authenticity of those who would ascribe to be Christians, we don't have to fear the if clause if we are truly transformed and devoted to God in such a way that only the Holy Spirit defines our identity. We are who we say we are if we persevere, if we hold fast or cling tightly to our confidence. And this church here is in need of perseverance. Now, all the church across the world is in need of perseverance. There's a specific type of perseverance that they're needing here in that they're encountering opposition. There are, there are forces that are pushing against their proclamation that Jesus is Lord. So they're persevering through that. They're supposed to hold fast to their confidence in a specific way. But all believers are persevering. And what they may be tempted to do here is to revert back to placing their hope and their trust and their identity in who Moses says they are to be. They revert back to the building, the beautiful design of the building, that which they are familiar with, that which they can look at and say, this deserves glory. But God's true people, God's true church, they persevere by boasting in the fact that God's promises have been fulfilled. That God's work is finished in Christ. There's something to behold beyond the building, what is established in front of us. This is a lovely community of believers who I'm sure there's a lot of trust in the Lord. There's a lot of walking in and operation of the grace of God amongst all of us. But there's no hope that I can place in any of you that goes beyond what Jesus has established, what Jesus will preserve, and what Jesus will glorify beyond this time here on earth. And that's what is, is being communicated here in that Moses is this impressive display of God's glory. That what Moses did and what Moses established is deserving of honor and reverence and significance. But it's only because the architect of everything that you behold is Christ. And on him alone is our foundation. On him alone does the building stand. They can, we can persevere because Jesus is better than Moses. As great as he was, even Moses failed his people. Moses couldn't take it anymore and the people were just too much. He did not advocate perfectly for his people. He lashed out and struck the rock. Water came out and said, here, you ungrateful hooligans. Take it. This is what you've been asking and crying and whining for. God help us. We would have no hope if Jesus struck the rock. We'd have no hope if Jesus for a moment said, I don't want to advocate for this people. I want to lash out because these obstinate, frustrating, violent people Continue to break God's law. But Jesus was faithful. 
Jesus was the most faithful that could ever be displayed as faithful. So these people are, are seeing this comparison here. They've entered in, the writer has entered into hallowed ground. Oh, no, you're going to deal with Moses. Yeah, Moses was faithful. Moses was a faithful servant of God. But consider Jesus. Consider what we have just come from. Consider why we are here right now. Consider everything that he has fulfilled. Think about and look closely at what it means to consider Jesus. And you'll find that you're not just called to acknowledge that, yes, he is worth more glory. I get it. I understand it. Leave it alone. You're not just called to, through gritted teeth, acknowledge that Jesus is more glorious, but you're to take it a step further. And only people who are transformed can do this. But you're to boast in it. Boast in this hope. Your entire pride system changes. Your confidence, whatever you are confident in, becomes completely shattered, and you're looking at an entirely new building. And you're boasting in it because you know who is the author. You know in whom you have believed. You know who has saved you, who has established you, and will cause you to persevere. This is transformation. This is joy. This is life on the line devotion. So again, this writer says, consider Jesus, whose very handwriting is on those stone tablets that you hold in high esteem. Consider Jesus, who is the one Moses spoke with in the cloud leaving with this physical reaction to being in God's presence where literally his appearance had changed because he'd come into contact with the glory of God. Hebrews 1 says he literally is the radiance and glory of God. Consider Jesus who liberates the captives, parts the seas, feeds the wanderers, brings the promises to pass, They had no hope to reach the promised land unless this entire body of water was moved away so that they could walk through. And we literally have the testimony of someone who the disciples marveled at and said, who is this that the winds and the seas obey him? Consider Jesus greater than this Moses guy. In light of what's being communicated in this text, we we may have some questions to ask ourselves. Who or what are we in danger of esteeming too highly? There are people who who are impressive in the way that they are able to compel us to to trust in Christ and and to read Scripture and to, to honor one another as brothers and sisters But we're in danger of esteeming them too highly. We're in danger of of looking at the beauty and and the structure and the framework of the building more than we are the designer, the architect, the one whose the concept came from. And it's not the fault of those who were faithful, who are faithful, who are actually doing great works to honor the Lord. Because their words to you and to me and to all of us would be, consider Jesus. 
The same thing with Moses. Moses, if he were alive at that time, and he says, oh, we have the living God walking among us? Let me get out of the way. But this was a struggle. It will always be our struggle as human beings. And that we, we assign more glory to the creation than the creator. And we have to acknowledge that all of our heroes, in quotations, will fail us. When a, a leader in ministry or someone who we, we've been influenced by, when, when we see them fail on a public scale, it lets so many people down. And there's a, there's a, a real despair where it's just like, wow, I'm, 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 I'm sorrowful for this outcome. This is a shame. This is a tragedy. And that's right. It's a, it's a natural response. But then for, for some, there's this instance where it's almost like my whole faith has come apart because this person has fallen. If they can't stand, then what's, what's the hope that I have? Consider Jesus, our faithful and merciful high priest who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Never place your trust in the building. Always look to the architect. None of our religious efforts can mimic true gospel transformation. And in being transformed, we respond to these things differently. We're truly born again. Our worldviews will be de- deconstructed, and what becomes newly constructed will last forever. As we walk through the rubble of everything that must come crashing down, we behold a new building whose builder is God, and it stands firm. It perseveres, it endures, and we hold fast to it because it'll never fail. And in that. We'll be able to honor our faith influences with a healthy conception of their fallibility. So when they do fail us, we don't just throw their books into a bonfire. We pray for them. Considering the mercy and the grace that we need. Oh my God, if I were to stand before people and then have a public view of my failings. Oh, my God, if a camera had to follow me around all the time. You know what that should do? That should provoke intercession. That should provoke a serious prayer life. When you know you don't have to face cameras, you don't have to face public interviews and have to be on point all the time. That should make you want to pray for some folks who do. We will have a healthy consideration of how they beautify the building. But again, we will not forget the architect. Now, we, we, we cannot mistake the messenger for the majesty. We can look at the, the beauty and, and I can acknowledge, like, there are some giants in the faith who've come through history. And I can acknowledge, okay, that person, if we're looking at the building, that person may be a support beam. I may just be the laminate on the countertop. Or I may be a a spoon inside the drawer. And even that, I'm an appliance, I guess. 
But there, there, there are those who you acknowledge and say, this is, this is vital to the structure of the building. It, it's what helps and supports and makes this beautiful. And there's significance that we can give it, but it's still a part of the building. In the end, we'll remember that as the holy and brothers and sisters of this community did, their only fitting hero is Christ Jesus. We persevere because he never fails. Consider the building that we're in right now as an appropriate metaphor. I've got people who, you know, they they drive by the church and say, hey, this is such a beautiful place. I mean, I, in my church history, like we, I've come from meeting in my mom and dad's house and meeting in storefronts of shopping areas and comparably, like, yeah, this is beautiful. But the building isn't the church. It's the people in it that should, should make it beautiful. And who makes us beautiful? Jesus. Consider him. Hope in the builder. He knows what we need. He advocates for those who he has saved. Get this. It's him who goes to prepare a place for you and I. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We, again, are just humbled by your faithfulness, consistent love, grace to us. We pray, God, that we, we, we fall on the appropriate foundation. We can continue to consider Jesus and his faithfulness, sufficiency of all that he has done. And we place our entire confidence, our entire hope in that. That you, in the sanctification process, we continue to deconstruct the the conclusions that we make about this life. And as we behold that which you build, enjoy the glorious reality of everything that you have established, that we look to you and give you glory for all things. Remind us, God, that we are recipients of mercy. We are recipients of grace not to just fall on the despair of our hopelessness, but to find joy in our rescue and to cling to this, not as if it is our effort that gives us the strength to do so, but your power, your might, your patience, allowing us to stand and boast in it to the surrounding world. I pray these things, God trusting in your faithfulness and your faithfulness in all. In Christ's name, amen.